2: Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So you may remember a couple years ago when an artist named Elizabeth Butcher got a ton of attention for this special shower curtain she designed. You'd be standing there just enjoying a nice warm shower. But if you didn't stay focused, after four minutes, you'd start to notice these soft spikes inflating around you. And before (laughs) you knew it, you'd be surrounded by them.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm so guilty of, uh, long
2: showers, but yeah. I love that thing. <laughs> I mean, me too. And these were obviously not sharp spikes, but the idea of spiky as it was called was to crowd the shower after you'd been in there long enough and encourage you to wrap things up. And I just thought it was so funny, but Butcher designed a shower curtain that, uh, would also slowly squeeze and trap <laughs> you. <what? laughs> this was a different one. I guess this was like an area of expertise of hers. <laughs> and so I started thinking about spiky the other day and I wondered if this ever actually became a real product. Unfortunately, when I searched for shower curtains with spikes, I found dozens of options for curtains with cacti on them, but (laughs) not the spiky I was looking for. But even if this didn't become a real product, it was a fun way to make people think about water usage and the very real water issues the planet's facing today. And those issues, along with the solutions scientists are trying so hard to find, are exactly what we'll be talking about today. So let's get started. Dear podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikater. A few weeks ago, we published an episode titled, Can We Feed 10 Billion? If you didn't hear it, it was an episode focused on many of the efforts being made to feed a rapidly growing global population. Well, after the episode ran, we heard from several listeners asking if we would do a similar one, but focused on water.
3: Well, there's no question the future of water and our access to clean water is a major issue. So much like we did in the Feeding the World episode, we'll be talking about many of the attempts to find solutions. And we have some really interesting guests, like we've got uh, Martin Reese, who's the world's most respected water sommelier. A water sommelier? I have to admit, <laughs> before this episode, I did not know that job existed. Well, he's actually the only one certified in uh, the U.S., and he is so enthusiastic. <laughs> and we'll also be talking to Florence Metz, who was the winner of the 2015 Dancer PhD contest which uh, I'm just so excited to talk to her as well. And have you seen this competition? I love this competition. Actually, (laughs) you, you kind of have to see the submissions to understand
2: it fully, but it's pretty much exactly what it sounds. You get all these Ph.D. candidates. And they submit these dance videos that help explain the research that they're doing. It's pretty awesome.
3: I know. I want like PBS to do a reality show based on this. So I was like, so you can take your dance. So Florence's research was about government policy and its effects on uh, water quality. And it's super sophisticated.
2: (laughs) Well, that's great. All right.
3: Well, I know we'll be talking about solutions in a bit, but I
2: think we have to start with the numbers and why this is a very real issue. Now, Mango, I know you pulled several of these. So why don't you tell us what you found?
3: Yeah. So here's a quick rundown on the stats I, I located. So the Atlantic reported that the global middle class will surge from 1.8 to 4.9 billion by 2030, which will lead to a serious rise in freshwater consumption. Oh, that's a huge increase. Yeah. And combine that with the fact that by 2025, there will be an estimated 1.8 billion people living in areas plagued by water scarcity. And two thirds of the world's population will be living in water stressed regions. Plus, the demand for water is expected to grow by more than 50% over the next 30 years. I mean, those numbers are just staggering. And these issues affect people in more ways than one, right? I mean, like, water scarcity can threaten the political stability of regions. And we won't really get into this, but water access isn't really fair. Like, right now, more than 600 million people are without access to safe water. And more than 1.5 billion are accessing a source that's contaminated by feces. And this is a little different, but at the end of the movie, I don't know if you remember this, but the big short, there's this ominous line about Dr. Michael Blurry, one of the investors who saw the mortgage collapse coming, and how he's only investing in water, which isn't exactly true. He's not buying up water rights, but he is using water scarcity as a way to guide his investment decisions.
2: Yeah, which is fascinating. And all those are striking and and honestly, very concerning numbers, but- Let's bring this back to the U.S. for just a minute. So a few years ago, there was this really interesting book published called The Big Thirst, The Secret Life and Turbulent Future of Water. And it was by a reporter named Charles Fishman. You and I have talked about this before, and it really helped us see what water use is like in the U.S. and how it's a resource that's completely taken for granted.
3: Yeah, there's a fascinating section early in the book that talks about a 1999 study that looked at how Americans flush. And the research team in the study used electronic water flow sensors in over a dozen cities to keep track of water and how it was being used over the course of a month. And even though the study is nearly two decades old now, it was considered so extensive and detailed that the EPA still looks at it as this, like, pretty clear view on how we use water in the states.
2: Yeah, they looked at pretty much every way we use water, whether it was taking baths or washing clothes, using the dishwasher. And how often we flush the toilet. And as Fishman notes, the study's overall conclusion can be summed up in four words. We like to flush.
3: (laughs) I mean, it's really crazy, isn't it? Yeah, for Americans, it's by far the biggest way we use water in our homes. More than cooking or bathing or even washing our clothes. The study found that the average American flushes the toilet five times a day and uses over 18 gallons in this process. So, if you're going to, like, put that in perspective, that's nearly 6 billion gallons of water flushed every day. I mean, when you consider that there are 600 million people without access to water who use only, honestly, like, 5 liters a day, and we're using 70 just to flush our toilets, it's completely insane. Yeah. And, uh... It's even more insane when you consider that the fact that the water we're flushing is cleaner than most people get to drink.
2: Right, right.
3: And while that's true,
2: that definitely doesn't mean we don't have our own water sanitation issues to deal with here. Mm -hmm. You know, there was the tragic news out of Flint, of course. But a report from the NRDC looked at 52,000 community drinking water systems across the country. And what they found was that a third of those had reported violations of the Safe Drinking Water Act. So this affects something like 77 million people in the country.
3: Which is so troubling. And by the way, all this talk of flushing made me remember a story from about seven or eight years ago. This guy, Anton Stukey, who is the head of a German sewage treatment plant, started piping in classical music while he worked. Oh,
2: I remember this. Yeah, Yeah,
3: and he realized that Mozart specifically was stimulating the microbes that were cleaning the water, and it made them work faster. And apparently they responded particularly well to the magic flute. I mean, who doesn't? (laughs) But before we leave the topic of water usage, we should note that while toilet flushing is the number one use of water in the home, the biggest consumption of water in the country comes from power plants. Like, our utilities use about seven times more water than Americans use in their homes. And this is about 200 billion gallons of water each day. And we're not just talking hydroelectric power. This is the water needed for coal and gas and nuclear power plants and processes like cooling. Nearly half of the water used in the U.S. is coming from power plants.
2: Yeah. One of the things Fishman talks about in his book is how a big part of the problem with water usage in the U.S. is that water is largely invisible. But luckily, you don't have to panic. There are some incredible solutions on the horizon. But before we get to those, let's break for a quiz.
3: So, Mango, who do we have on the line today? We've got the winner of the 2015 Dance Your PhD contest, Florence Metz, and she's joining us from the University of Bern in Switzerland. All right. Welcome to Part-Time Genius, Florence.
4: Thank you very much for having me in your show.
2: <laughs> so for those of you who have never seen the, uh, dance your PhD contest, you've definitely been missing something awesome. There are some great videos. You really need to Google Florence's. It's uh, if you just Google Florence Metz, the last name is M-E-T-Z. It's a terrific video, but, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But Florence, before we jump into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research? You know, we've been doing this episode on the future of water and, and obviously your, your research was relevant to this, but tell us a little bit about it
4: yeah so my research is about cooperation in um, politics, and I took the example of water protection policies where there is new um, new pollutants that are called emerging pollutants or micropollutants because they are in the water in very small concentrations and un- until now we didn't really know whether that they are in the water, but because technology improved, we can now find pollutants in very small concentrations, for example, from um, medication, from cleaning agents, from um, all types of cosmetics. And the question really is, uh, does does it matter to have these pollutants in water in these small concentrations? And how can we agree on a political solution?
3: So, Flores, how did you decide to enter this contest? Did you just feel it would naturally be communicated in dance form?
4: <laughs> well, I once heard about a colleague who participated in the Dance Your PhD contest. And first of all, I couldn't really believe that this exists, that this is a thing. <laughs> and then um, I watched a few a few um, videos, and I just thought it's such a funny idea, such a cool idea. And because I love dancing and I do this since I can practically walk, and I also love um, research. So I thought it would be a cool way of combining both of my interests.
2: Did you have any other favorites from the uh, from the competition that you feel we should check out?
4: There is a video <laughs> on the mating behavior of fruit flies. I think that is really great because <laughs> <laughs> the, the dance that they do kind of transports very well how, how this can possibly work. <laughs> so I also really liked... The video from the year before the year one, which was 2000, so from 2014, there was somebody explaining in chemistry how to make mayonnaise with less fat. (laughs) It's very creative. It was actually a little source of inspiration for my video.
2: Because you are clearly a talented dancer, I don't think you'll have
3: any problem with this quiz. What are we playing today with Florence, Mango? It's a game called So You Think You Know Dance, and it's a true-false about important moments in dance history. All right, here we go. Florence, are you ready? Yes, ready. Okay, question number one.
2: As a teenager, Bruce Lee was a cha-cha champion. True or false?
4: (laughs) Well, it's funny that you mention Bruce Lee because all the martial arts and kung fu Is really beautiful to watch. It's like a dance. And I really like these choreographies of Kung Fu in the movies. So I would, I can very well imagine that somebody who does Kung Fu and martial arts also is into dancing. So I would say yes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're right. He was an excellent dancer. And in 1958, he won a Hong Kong championship. Oh, wow. That's pretty great. Mm -hmm. All right. Question number two The chicken dance wasn't inspired
2: by chickens but by skiers. The dance was invented after an accordion player noticed the way Swiss skiers happily flapped their arms as they came down the mountains. Is this true or false?
4: Well, I should know because I live in Switzerland, but I've <laughs> never really noticed anybody doing a chicken dance after skiing. Um, I know. I know the Chicken dance more from funk dance, which has a move called Funky Chicken. And, <laughs> and this is a thing, so I would just assume, yes, it's true.
3: All right.
2: <laughs> yeah, two for two. Florence provides better commentary than we do for these. That's pretty great. All right, question number three. In South America, the Hokey Pokey is known as hotly Barotly.
4: I would say it's, um, let's say it's true.
3: Ooh, good guess. It's actually false, though the song is known as the Hokey Cokey in the
2: UK. Oh, the Hokey Cokey, all right. (laughs) Well, she's two for three, still on a path toward a prize, I think. So, number four, sloths engage in a poo dance when they use the bathroom. Once they've climbed to the base of a tree, they hold onto the trunk as they slowly sway and wiggle their hips. True or false? That
4: sounds very... Very handy, like, and relieving. (laughs) Um, I would say (laughs) nature is fantastic, and I would say it's true.
3: That's right. And they only go once a week. Wow. All right. Well,
2: I would (laughs) dance, too. (laughs) Okay. Number five, last one for the big prize. Michael Jackson had a line of lavender-scented medicated dance socks to combat stinky feet. The tagline was, you don't have to be a wallflower just to smell like one. True or false? (laughs)
4: I would say
2: this is false. You're right. (laughs) All right. So how did Florence do today, Mango?
3: So Florence won an amazing four for five, which wins her a note to her mom or boss singing her praises. But in addition to that, we're actually going to send her a Martha Graham finger puppet, which is probably the most important way to honor Martha Graham's legacy. That's right. Well, congratulations, Florence. Thanks so
5: much for being on Part-Time Genius.
4: Thank you very much. That was fun.
5: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with Naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner now. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
2: Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. Now, as promised, we're going to talk about some of the technological developments that will hopefully help us in an effort to provide much more of the Earth's population with access to clean water. But real quick, can we just talk about how old Earth's water is?
3: Yeah, this is fascinating to me. And it's similar to what we discussed the other day with Caesar's last breath when we talked about the fact that each time we take a breath, there's a good chance that there's some molecule in that breath that was breathed by uh, Julius Caesar. It's really weird to think about. Yeah, it is. And with water, we don't think about the fact that the water we drink and swim in and even wash our clothes with has been around since just after the Earth was formed.
2: That's right. I mean, the Earth is somewhere around 4.4 4 or 4.5 billion years old, which is kind of weird when something is old enough not to think of a margin of error of 100 million years. is <laughs> very big. But the solar system itself was formed around 4.6 billion years ago. But the point is, when the Earth was created, water was present shortly after that. And new water has been neither created nor destroyed since then, so the water you use today has pretty much
3: always been here. So the issue we're talking about today is not really that there's a lack of water on Earth. There's a whole lot of water on Earth. It's the water that we can actually drink. That's the issue. And to begin, less than 3% of the water in the world is fresh water. And less than 1% is even accessible. And most of the rest would either be found underground or in glaciers.
2: All right. So we keep saying we're going to get to the fun stuff, the (laughs) science behind some of the solutions
3: to providing access to more drinkable water. So let's get to it. So I'll start us off. So I know this isn't exactly a new technique, but I think we should talk about fog harvesting. And this is something that's been practiced in several countries, even ones that get very little rainfall. But in this case, it's not about developing a completely new idea. It's about making significant improvements to existing systems. To get a visual of how fog harvesting works, imagine giant tennis nets being put up in the desert, except the netting is mesh-like and has much, much smaller holes, so it actually catches the water and fog as it passes through. Yeah, and the work that's being
2: done between MIT and the researchers in Chile, is it's, it's really impressive.
3: Yeah, they've been working for a few years now to improve the efficiency of uh, previous nets by five or six times, which may seem difficult, but it's really going from capturing about 2% of the fog that passes through them to about 10%. And that can make a huge difference if each square meter of mesh can yield several more liters of water each day. Yeah, and in a desert region where there are really few
2: options for getting drinkable water, I mean, this is a pretty promising thing. But there are other options being developed, too. One that I think is really cool is being developed by a company called Zero Mass Water. And this is another effort to take water out of the air and turn it into water that we can drink. And the technology behind it is so cool. So to simplify it, it's basically using solar panels to help create drinking water instead of electricity. (laughs) That's awesome. How does that work? Well, there was this terrific popular science article by a guy named Jeremy Deaton on this from last year. And as Deaton explains, imagine a salt shaker with grains of rice interspersed among the salt. The rice absorbs moisture, keeping the salt dry. And zero-mass water developed a material that acts like those grains of rice. They absorb the water from the air. So the water is extracted from that material and then purified. And source adds calcium and magnesium to match the flavor and pH of bottled water, which produces five liters a day. And that's enough to say to a family of four. And this is done using solar panels because they make it possible to create power in developing countries in areas that are far from any power grid. It's actually pretty amazing.
3: Yeah, there's also been some pretty significant advances in water generators, which use these plastic leaves that create condensation by cooling the air around them. And on a pretty warm and humid day, some of these generators can create over 800 gallons of water. And obviously these work better or generate more water in humid climates, but they still work in dry climates, even if a little more slowly. Mm -hmm.
2: It really is incredible to see all the thinking going into solving these kinds of problems. I know the other day when we were talking about how exercise doesn't actually contribute that much to weight loss, I made a comment that science was stupid. (laughs) I want to go ahead and change my mind. I guess science is, is pretty incredible. But anyway, so these are just some of the ways people are trying to capture more water. We should also talk about wastewater and the progress scientists
3: and engineers are making toward being able to reuse it. So think about all the water we talked about Americans using every day, right? And once it's flushed or used... There's got to be a more efficient and even productive way to reuse it. I mean, there is some reuse of treated wastewater, but not nearly at the scale that it should be. Yeah, right now, wastewater is typically pumped pretty long
2: distances to these centralized plants to be treated. But there are efforts to figure out how to have that wastewater treated more locally. Then it can be returned more easily to nearby
3: users rather than having to be pumped several miles. And there's also the big project happening out in Modesto, which is going to be California's largest wastewater to ag project. They're actually building a federal canal to move recycled water to farmers nearby. And you can just imagine how helpful this is going to be during times of drought. This kind of thing is done on much smaller scales around the country, but getting this right on a much larger scale is going to be huge.
2: Yeah, hopefully it'll be a big success. And I, I see here it's scheduled to start maybe by the end of the year, mm-hmm. which would be, which would be pretty incredible. All right, since we're already talking about wastewater, I've got one that may take some time for people to get used to. It's one thing to think about reusing wastewater for farming, but what about the research going into turning
3: urine into drinkable water? (laughs) I feel like that's the plot point that uh, made Waterworld collapse, but uh, I can't say I'd be ready to sign up for it. I'm not sure I would
2: either, but my favorite part about this is where some of the earliest testing was done a couple years back. The researchers in Belgium have created a solar-powered machine that gets rid of all the yucky stuff. (laughs) Pretty sure that's the scientific term. But the yucky stuff in urine that turns it into drinkable water. And guess where they tested this? I don't know. Tell me. So it was at a huge music festival in Belgium. They took lots and lots of festival pee and were able to recover (laughs) over a 1,000 liters of water. And that was then available for use in making Belgian beer. Again, this was all from the urine of people attending this festival. (laughs) Festival pee. I think
3: they're going to market that. That's right. (laughs) So tell me how it's possible. Well, there's
2: a (laughs) distillation process where the main purpose is to get rid of the ammonia in urine. Then the remaining liquid goes back into this big tank, and it's heated up by solar power in this boiler. Then it goes through another filtering system, which separates things out like nitrogen and potassium, And those things can actually be reused for uh, products like fertilizer. And then you're left with this drinkable
3: water, which I I know I was down on it earlier, but it actually sounds pretty incredible. It does. Yeah. And I know NASA has been successful in turning urine into drinkable water, too. And obviously, if this can eventually be executed on this larger scale, that could provide a ton of drinking water. But since we're on the topic of drinking water, why don't we talk to our next guest? I'm really excited about uh, having Martin on the line.
2: Our guest today is the only one of his kind in America. He's a water sommelier. Of course, there are lots of wine sommeliers out there. In fact, I didn't know there were any other kinds. Did you, Mango? I didn't. (laughs) So these are experts that help us understand what to look for in a wine, what to pair wines with, how to taste them, and all that. So that's what our guest today does, and he's the only certified water sommelier in America. I know we both love it when people have these crazy, interesting, (laughs) unique jobs, and so I'm super excited to talk with him. Martin Reese, welcome to Part-Time Genius.
7: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
2: Well, Martin, Martin tell us how you got into this. I mean, was, was this something you, did you always love water?
7: So I have to say, like, the first impression what I had about water I was on vacation time with my parents, and I was around four or five years old. I cannot really remember so much, but it was always for me intrigued to taste the different tap waters in the different cities of Europe. And I realized as a child that water had taste. That was for me really interesting. And my parents always thought, like, why is he running always in the cities to the tap right away? Is he thirsty? Or What's going on with him? <laughs> and it's not like overhydration for me. It was literally about the taste.
0: Wow. And then
7: in 2005, our guest came to me in, in Berlin, uh, where I worked in the restaurant business there, and said, hey, Martin, you have over a thousand different wines on your wine menu, but you're just serving one particular brand of water. And I don't really like that brand, like from the taste profile-wise. Do you have something else for me? And I thought, you know what? He's absolutely right. It's all about options in the restaurant business. You have a wine menu. You have different beers on tap. You have different liquors. But when it comes to water, our most important beverage in our lives, uh, the server mostly will tell you, oh, do you want sparkling flat or tap? (laughs)
6: They're
7: even asking you if you prefer a brand. And I thought I need to change that. So the concept of a water sommelier is not like brand new. It's not an invention here in L.A. I started that in 2005 in Germany.
3: (laughs) Wow. And so what are you looking for in a great water?
7: First of all, I'm looking where it's coming from. So there's two big differences when it comes to bottled water here in America. On the one hand, you have purified waters. On the other hand, you have natural occurring spring or glacier waters. Uh, I'm a person who doesn't go out to dine when I'm going out in like restaurants, like fast food chains or something, because I think – uh, food should be healthy, and food should be coming from a natural resource as well, and I want to make sure that my food is actually has vitamins and all the ingredients in there. And by water, it's actually the same, because purified water is nothing else than highly processed food. That means it's tap water in the different region where they're like actually bottling that. They're filtering everything out of the tap water. They're adding back some minerals in very small amounts, and they're selling it for a high price. In my opinion, the biggest scam on planet Earth.
2: <laughs> so so do, you, uh, do you ever drink tap water?
7: Yeah, sure. I'm tasting it still. Every time when I'm going to a new city, I always, the first thing I'm going to do is tasting the tap water and see if I like it or don't like it. <laughs> Some cities have amazing tap waters. Some cities, I, I can't even smell the tap water right away. Yeah, what, what, what are, it's not really a good sign that I want to drink it. <laughs> what, what
3: are the top three cities for tap water, in <laughs> your opinion?
7: Uh, the top cities for tap water... Munich is very good. Uh I was in New York. I was actually impressed. But even New York has so many different tap water qualities. I was in a building. I did an interview and the tap water was terrible. In the next building, the tap water was actually very good. So it depends as well a little bit on the pipes where the tap water is running through. So it's even there. It's not even that just one city is perfect and the other city is very bad. But mostly cities a little bit northern of us like Alaska or Canada, these cities have way better tap water qualities than actually here in the United States. In L.A., I'm not a big fan of the tap water. It's it's chlorinated. I can smell it. It's not really what I'm looking for when I want to drink a water.
2: Yeah. So are you ever, you know, blown away by the taste of a new water these days? And and do you have a favorite water?
7: Yes. I just been in China for three weeks ago, and there was a big water tasting competition. It's an international water tasting competition from the Fine Water Society. And I tasted over 110 different mineral waters. And there were like two or three waters I was really impressed of, And I gave them then like obviously good points as well. There was one water. It's called Prima from South Africa. I gave this 100 points. Unbelievable great water. Huh. It was such unique. It was very sweet in your palate, almost like a gummy beer. And it was very unique for me, a characteristic to find in a water. Another water comes from Romania. It's called Aqua Capatica. I thought it's an incredible great tasting water, beautiful minerality in it, nitrate-free, so nothing harmful in that water. It's very, very good in taste. And it's gilded, for example, from Denmark, uh, oxygenated water. When I shake the bottle, it turns into almost like milky flavors because there's a lot of oxygen into this water. So it changes colors when you're pouring it into your glass. So there's so many interesting and unique springs out of there. I'm really fascinated about it. Or here yeah, in the grocery store, I have to say, in America, my thing, what I'm buying is Fiji mostly Of the times, because I like the taste of Fiji water as well. It has a very smooth mouthfeel to it. I think it's a great tasting water. But hey, it's all about personal preferences.
6: <laughs> right,
2: right. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I, I don't know if this is bad or not, but some of my favorite water in the world was when I used to drink it out of the hose as a kid. Is, is that bad? <laughs> it tasted It almost tasted metallic. And for some reason, I liked that.
7: Hey. This is interesting part of it. I'm glad you're saying this because a lot of people are always saying, oh, but there's like taste tests made of tap water versus spring water. And some people saying tap water or mostly tap water will will win the competitions. I can tell you why. Because people are raised on tap water and they think that the taste of tap water is the taste of water. When they've been raised on chlorinated tap water, they don't know better in my opinion. So they always thought, oh, this is the taste of water. Yeah. Until they suddenly realize, oh, there's a different taste to water, but I don't really like it because I cannot think that this is actually water. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean it's good or bad.
2: Right. So it's right. quite
7: interesting that sometimes tap water wins in competitions against mineral water because people are just known to the taste of tap water better than to mineral water.
3: It's so fun hearing you talk about this. Yeah, that stuff. it's fascinating. <laughs> I,
2: I, I love that. I'm so. very
7: passionate when it comes to water. <laughs> That's... That's pretty terrific. I'm getting thirsty already. Water should not be a dry
2: topic. (laughs) (laughs) He's punny, too. All right. Well, since we are speaking of bad puns, right? (laughs) Since uh, since you are a master of taste, we thought we would put you to the test. What game is Martin playing with us today, Mango?
3: He's going to play a game called Tastes Like Chicken. And every one of these answers supposedly tastes like chicken.
2: All right. (laughs) So we've got Uh five questions for you, Martin. Here we go. You ready? Sure. Okay. Number one. Before refrigeration, Russians used to drop these animals live into their milk to keep the milk fresh. Kermit should watch out. What are we talking about that tastes like chicken? Uh,
7: frog legs. Yes, well done.
2: <laughs> one for one. Okay, here we go. Number two.
7: I work in the restaurant business. I actually add a lot of frog legs already myself. So.
2: <laughs> but, but not to the milk, I hope.
7: No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, question number two. It's illegal in Queensland to own this pet unless you can prove you're a magician. What are we talking about that tastes like chicken?
7: Cats?
2: <laughs> that would be a good guess. But the, uh, the hint there was magician. It's actually, is it rabbit, Mango? Yeah, right? it's a rabbit. Okay. So what happens if, they, uh, if they're found with a
3: rabbit? <laughs> Offenders actually face a $45,000 fine because the critters are considered an invasive species. Wow, but not if you're a magician. Not if you're That's a magician. incredible. Yeah. Okay.
2: All
7: right. Interesting. What,
2: Question number three. While a popular prank involves claiming that this snake's eggs are inside an envelope, and when the pranky opens it, the envelope clatters, the truth is this noisy snake actually gives birth to live babies. What are we talking about that tastes like chicken?
7: I would guess a rattlesnake. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well
2: done, Martin. Okay. Question number four. George R.R. Martin claims that watching these shelled pets interact with one another gave him the inspiration to create Game of Thrones. What are we talking about that tastes like chicken?
7: It's funny. I just been to the premiere of Game of Thrones and there was thousands of um, dragons. Oh. So
3: maybe
7: it's a dragon. <laughs> it, seems,
3: it should be dragons. I wish it were dragons. What is it, man? It's turtles. <laughs> he imagined his pets had much less tame personalities as he drew up the outline for his book.
7: And the interesting part is, I think I was the only person on the Games of Thrones premiere after show party who never saw any episodes of Game of Thrones. (laughs) 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 It's like, that's maybe an interesting water-somming effect. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I never saw any episodes of Game of Thrones.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, here we go. You didn't have to see any episodes of Game of Thrones for this last one, but um, we'll see how you do. Question number five. This one's for the big prize. While these animals and University of Florida mascot can't chew because their jaws can't move side to side, they're still quite capable of ripping big chunks of flesh and swallowing. What are we talking about that tastes like chicken?
7: I would say it's an alligator.
3: Yeah, yes,
2: absolutely. All right, how did Martin do today, Mango?
3: <laughs> Martin went an amazing three for five, which wins him our big prize: our undying admiration. All right, congratulations,
7: Martin. Here we kill. <laughs>
3: This has been really fun, Martin.
2: Thanks so much for being on Part-Time Genius.
5: Thank you so much, and stay thirsty,
2: guys.
5: (laughs) Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a there. Available wherever you will get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details. This is it.
0: Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future.
2: welcome back to part-time genius so we've talked a bit about the very real water issues we're facing over the coming decades and we've talked a little bit about the brilliant efforts to generate drinkable water in places all around the world so we need to talk about the future and whether there's any hope of getting control of this problem
3: or honestly whether it's simply too late Well, the good news is it isn't too late, right? Though we have some serious work ahead of us, as Charles Fishman explains in The Big Thirst, a big part of the problem is the way we look at water and the fact that it's largely invisible. So we should explain what he means when he says invisible. Yeah, what Fishman means is that all the ways we get our water and where it actually comes from are mostly unknown to us. I mean, think about it. When you get a drink of water from your sink or take a shower, where does that water come from and how did it get to you? I'd say most people can't answer that question.
2: Yeah, and not only that, but you know something I'm also guilty of is
3: it just kind of seems like this endless supply. Yeah, on top of that, it costs next to nothing. Like, despite the fact that we couldn't survive without access to clean water, our monthly water bill is usually a fraction of what we pay for our cell phone. I mean, it's closer to what you'd shell out for Netflix. And according to Fishman, and I'm going to quote him here, 10 gallons of tap water at home costs on average three pennies. That's the equivalent of getting 74 of those $1. 29 half half-liter bottles of water we love so much for less than a nickel. We happily pay 3,000 times that price at the convenience store, one bottle for $1. twenty-nine. But when the water bill goes from $30 to $34 a month, customers react as if they'll have to choose between their prescription drugs and their water service. Well, so this is what Fishman means
2: when he talks about water's invisibility. And he even points out that in many places, our water bill isn't actually for the water itself. It's for the cost of everything involved in getting the water to us. And if you pointed this out to someone, they might even say, it's water, of course it's free.
3: (laughs) It's really such a weird way to think about a resource that we couldn't possibly live without. I know. As for the future, Fishman talks about the fact that we're going to have to find ways to begin using the right water for the right purpose. Like, there's no reason to be using purified drinking water in our toilets and to keep our lawns green. And we'll probably have tiers of water based on how clean the water is and What it's used for and those prices will probably vary. Well, it's definitely an interesting thought and
2: and also very interesting to think about, you know, the fact that unlike issues of global warming, solving this crisis really isn't that much of a global solution as it is a local solution. Hmm. Every region and community will need to solve its own water crisis, though I know regions will obviously learn from each other.
3: Yeah, and the key is to remember that these water problems are solvable. As we discussed earlier, the water here today will be here tomorrow, We just need to learn how to harness it and take proper care to use it wisely. And I'm hopeful we can figure that out. But I'm even more hopeful that I can take home today's PTG Fact Off trophy.
2: We'll we'll see about that.
3: (laughs) So our genius researcher Gabe sent me a list of animals that conserve water in interesting ways. Sand gazelles in the Arabian desert actually shrink some of their organs during periods of little rain. They can reduce the size of their heart by 20% and their livers by 45%, which means they don't have to breathe as much because those organs actually require lots of oxygen to function. And when they breathe less, they use less water in their respiratory process, which is a pretty cool survival trick. Yeah, it is.
2: All right, well, I've got a short one to start. Approximately half of all water delivered to homes in Florida is used to water the lawn.
3: (laughs) Speaking of lawns, here's one about flamingos that I learned from the podcast Every Little Thing. Did you know flamingos can drink water at near boiling temperatures? They basically use geysers like water fountains. So strange. All
2: right, well, when we think of water use, Las Vegas is not the first place that comes to most people's minds when it comes to smart recycling. But it turns out that more than 90% of water that's used indoors in the Las Vegas metro area From showers to dishwashers, toilets, whatever it is, it's captured and then recycled. Some of it goes to watering golf courses and parks, of which there are plenty in that area, and then some of it's cleaned and returned to Lake
3: Mead. So guess what? I've got another animal fact. Australian tree frogs have these weird waterproof mucus cocoons that they can secrete when it's really hot and dry out, and this cocoon holds moisture in. They can actually live for more than two years with the liquid remaining in their bladder. Wow.
2: All right, after not really being an industry a few decades ago, bottled water has finally passed soda as the number one beverage in the U.S. In 2016, bottled water edged out soda with the average American drinking 39 gallons of water and 38.5 gallons of soda. But the two largest bottled water brands, Dasani and Aquafina, they're still owned by Coca-Cola and PepsiCo.
3: Well, I might as well use this opportunity to get in one more animal fact. Big surprise. (laughs) So tortoises can go a year without drinking water, and Australian tree frogs can go two years, but the kangaroo rat lives its whole life without drinking any water, at least not water by itself. They get their water by oxidizing food, meaning they can create water by recombining molecules. That's pretty cool and crazy.
2: I can't say that I quite understand
3: that, but that is pretty (laughs) amazing. They don't have to drink
2: their whole lives. All right. I think you should put that fact to a dance. It's so good. I'm going to have to give you this week's Fact Off trophy. Congrats, Mango.
3: Well, thank you. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening.
2: Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
3: Tristan McNeil does the
2: editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
3: (laughs) Gary Rowland does the exact producer thing.